We are nearing the end of our journey through the book of Luke, one of the four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, which we began way back in September. We'll reach our last passage in just two weeks. But before we get there, you may have noticed that we skipped a chapter, chapter 21. That was on purpose. Because in Luke 21, Jesus invites his disciples to look into the future, into the fullness of time, and prepare for what awaits them on the far horizon. Some call chapter 21 Luke's apocalypse. We'll be looking at it this week and next week. If you want to follow along with today's passage, we will be reading Luke 21 verses 5 through 19. The future Jesus describes in these two passages is ultimately beautiful, but things Jesus tells his disciples will get worse before they get better. And yet, because Jesus himself is walking with us, and because he knows the final outcome, we are, in fact, walking into hope. So listen for God's word of hope to you from Luke 21, verses 5 through 19. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, For what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name." So you will bear testimony to me, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, and sisters, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm, and you will win life. Amen. Thank you, Gwyneth and Graham. So, when you cash something, C-A-C-H-E, when you cash something, that means you are storing it up for future use. But what does it mean when what you're cashing is resilience? It was the year 1941. Great Britain had been at war with Germany for almost two years, and it was, in the words of that movie title, Britain's darkest hour. Her army had retreated and had abandoned the continent against the onslaught of the German Blitzkrieg. And on the high seas, which 
is the place where for centuries Britannia ruled the waves. German U-boats were taking an appalling toll on British naval vessels and merchant marine vessels. In fact, in those two years, Britain had lost 770 ships and lost 16,000 sailors. The losses of the ships and the sailors were disheartening enough, but what was especially galling to British naval intelligence is that it seemed that many of these deaths were not really necessary. British intelligence had studied the classified reports of episode after episode of ship sinkings, and they noticed a discouraging pattern that again and again, as the crews of the doomed vessels were told to abandon ship, the sailors would eventually, essentially give up. They, uh, they would fling themselves into the waves, making no real effort to survive. And they had been given life vests, and they'd been given life rafts, been given all sorts of emergency supplies. The only thing that they seemed to lack was resilience. Resilience. That invisible inner reservoir of strength and perseverance from which a person can draw when things get really tough in the face of unexpected challenges. Resilience is that intangible motivation to keep going instead of simply giving up. And it was clear to British intelligence that basic naval training was altogether failing to instill such a reservoir of strength and determination. And so they set out to find a way to cache that resilience in each sailor long before the moment came when he might truly need it. Which is why they turned to this man, Kurt Hahn. In 1934, just a few years before that, he had founded a unique co-ed school for young people in Scotland called the Gordonston School. And at the Gordonston School, he used outdoor adventure like mountaineering and sailing, to teach young people what he called adaptive coping, which is basically caching a reservoir of internal tenacity that would, in hardship, drive perseverance and confidence and ultimately survival. And so based on these principles, Han redesigned the basic training for British sailors with Remarkable results. Survival rates from ship losses increased dramatically. Well, looking for some identifiable symbol for this unique approach to resilience training, Carl Hahn soon adopted as its trademark a particular nautical signal flag. And it's the flag that a ship would normally hoist when it's heading out of port. And the name of this signal flag is outward bound, which soon became the name of the movement that Kurt Hahn had founded, that in the post-war years, in the years since, has grown to 250 wilderness bases in 30 countries around the world, where just last year, 250,000 young people and older people cashed the resilience that they would need to face whatever life throws in their way. Now, some of you are thinking that a story about sailors and sinking ships in World War II might be a Father's Day story. 
that, uh, that this is an odd one with which to begin a sermon on Mother's Day, and it's a little bit more grim and a little bit darker than most of those cards that I saw on the rack at Bartels this week. <laughs> Even so, this morning I want to make the case that the capacity that Kurt Hahn was building into those sailors 80 years ago, caching resilience, is one that mothers have been giving their kids since the dawn of time. That a significant, though I would say largely unappreciated element of the task of a mom, and yes, of a dad too, but today's Mother's Day, is to patiently and intentionally cache, store away within that child a reservoir of resilience. Now, implied in this claim is an unwelcome truth. But it's a truth that every parent must face. And that is that at some point, off beyond the horizon, years, maybe even decades in the future, that child is going to face some sort of struggle that will shake them to the core. Some ordeal, some trial that a mom, as much as she might want to, will not be able to prevent and might not even be there to mitigate. The best a mom can do is to cash as much resilience as she can. Before I turn to this scripture that Glenna read, I want to explore this idea of resilience just a little bit further. What it is, where it comes from, what it looks like in real life. And so I've asked someone to join me up here who more than anyone that I know lives resilience daily. Kate Gibbs has generously agreed to reflect with us on what this word resilience means to her. Thank you, Kate. Here, come up here in the light. And I'm going to give you a microphone. All right. So, many in this room know you well, but not everybody. So, um, tell us a little bit of the story and why I might be making the case that resilience has been an important part of your life in the last few years. I'm not so sure about the second one, but uh, I was a stay-at-home mom, and I always thought by the time my girls were through junior high, we'd be back in the workforce. Instead, uh, about that time, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Uh, it's a disease where it's an autoimmune disease where your body chews up the insulation around your nerves and makes conduction along the central nervous system work pretty poorly. So basically, the messages from the brain don't make it to the limbs, and, and you get all kinds of odd symptoms. Uh, I was totally unprepared for this. Um, I am somebody who has always, I'm a, heck, I'm an American and a Presbyterian, mm -hmm. and I'm all for being strong in my own strength and self-sufficient, and Weakness and disability was absolutely not on my radar screen. You even mentioned that um, this wheelchair right here was uh, a difficult decision this morning. <laughs> as, as I will explain, I, um, we looked up the meaning of resilience this morning, which is bouncing back 
Actually, I, it's, I think God has invited me to bounce someplace different, which is not back into the strength that I once had, which mm. is definitely what I'd like to do. It's, mm -hmm. it's uh, bouncing into trusting uh, other God's provision in other ways. And I've often thought, gee, it would be great if we could feel free to share our neediness here at church. And I thought, okay, it, I better start living into that. So as a spiritual discipline, I thought I would show you my newest tool. I'm still walking, but I'm darn slow. And this is going to be a handy tool, even if I do have a kind of a love-hate relationship with it right now. So you may not have used this specific word, but um, I can imagine, even in the years that I've known you, and as you've adjusted to the reality of this diagnosis, as it's progressed, uh, resilience has been part of your life. You have had to tap into reservoirs of strength to get through this and not to give up. Tell us about what resilience has looked like for you. Uh, you wrote that question as, what have I learned? And that's possibly I'm answering this a little differently okay. than you might expect. Uh, I've learned a lot. Um, Two things I would, I would uh, put forward this morning. Uh, Eugene Peterson quotes, there's a, uh, a verse he translates in Corinthians, which is, ignorance of God is a luxury you cannot afford in times like this. Hmm. And there is a lot of really lousy theology out there in the hmm. Christian community. And top of the list of that, is that somehow everything that's going on in this world is just as God wants it to be and is, is this perfect will. It all happens for a reason. It's all... And that's a terrible perspective to have. It, it's, it's complete. It, we live in a very broken, messed up world. It's not in the least how God ever intended it to be. Uh, a lot of our suffering comes from our own sinfulness maybe, maybe from our own stupidity or that of others. It, it, mm. it, uh, there's lots of reasons uh, in the brokenness. It's, it's to think that this is what God wants life to look like gives us very strange ideas about what his love is and, and what he cares about. And therefore, suffering is a very dangerous thing for us. It is quite likely to make us turn away from God and run away as it is to run towards him, which is what we need to be doing. Hmm. Um, I have uh, also explained that I'm not happy with weakness and smallness, but I've also come to see that that, no matter how strong we think we are in our human condition, uh, again, there's a, there's a song by Rich Mullins where the refrain is, we're awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. And if we don't understand that, we can't let God be as big as he really is. And we can't let him be strong in our lives. We'll always be bound by the strength, by whatever strength we have, instead of by his resources. And I... Sometimes he gives us the strength to go through things, but other times he just provides us the help. And it means I need to trust 
and, and you all to be there, which you have been. This has been a fantastic community. My husband's been there for me. And, and, and again, and resources and the way he's going to provide. I, I've learned to stop hoping in a particular outcome and just hoping in who God is and the fact that he loves me and he is going to be there. But trusting in you folks and in God and his provision is a lot scarier than trusting in myself. So, mm-hmm. wow. so I, I came here this morning humming the words of that song. I was so startled to hear the, to hear the choir sing it. You are my hiding place. In my, in, you are my hiding oh, wow. place. And let the weak say I am strong in the strength of the Lord. Wow. Okay, so as we talked about this, I knew this was going to happen on Mother's Day, so I kind of just threw out this sort of experimental question. I said, okay, um, what, what part has your mom played in your reservoir of resilience that you've had to tap as an adult? And I discovered a whole lot more than I expected. Yes. Um, my mother uh, began her cancer journey uh, when I was about four. She got a very severe cancer. This is uh, 1956, roughly that. She spent most of the next two years in the hospital in New York City, uh, occasional times back home in between, at a time when children were not allowed to visit hospitals because you carried too much infection. Uh, During that time, she must have done a lot of processing about life with cancer. And she came out, she uh, had bouts of different cancers over the next 30 years. The last 10 years she had metastasized cancer and they were playing whack-a-mole with the various treatments. Um, I'm not here to tell you she lived was able to, to outlive a, a, a death sentence with ca- cancer because of her good, treat, a good attitude, but it did make a huge difference of how she lived life in the midst of cancer. Um, <laughs> when I was four or five in Sunday school, and the teacher was going around with those questions, you know, that typical teacher question of, okay, well, tell me about what you're drawing. I explained I was drawing a picture of my mother in the hospital getting well. And the poor teacher freaked out, and she went to the pastor the next day and said, what am I going to do? This child actually thinks her mother's going to be getting well. And they all knew that wasn't true. And they, the pastor and she finally decided they had no business overriding what my mother had said. And by golly, <laughs> my mother got well. And, and well enough. And she had a tremendous cheerful courage. She, she was determined to be optimistic. She brushed off fear. She had no intention of having her life defined by the cancer. She did everything she could to, to maintain a normal life. And uh, with the various setbacks and, and uh, the terrible treatments she occasionally had to have, she took them philosophically, just one more hurdle to get over to get back to normal life. And when I was diagnosed with MS, I just knew this was nothing compared to what she'd been through. So 
Wow. Just appease the cake. So the last question I have is you're also a mom yourself. And yes, I am. What, how have you thought about uh, caching resilience in your own kids? <laughs> when he first asked me that question, I laughed because I, I felt sorry for my husband that he's had to put up with this. I have felt sorry for myself that I've had to put up with it. I have never felt sorry for my kids. I thought, heck, it's good for them. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and they, they have learned a lot. They've, they've learned to, to be nurturers. They've learned to be caregivers. And, and, and it has been good for them. Um, I think, to be honest, we, we do need to learn to there's a lot we can do to prevent suffering, and, and we should be doing that. We should be, we can't foresee everything that's going to happen far from it. We can be almost guaranteed it's gonna come in a form we don't expect, but that doesn't mean we can't do our best to, to, uh, have, re, to have savings. I mean, just the simple, normal, dumb stuff, to build skills for our kids, mm to teach them to be sensible, to, to expect the unexpected to some degree. Uh, but we can also model a real faith and a real God. We can, sometimes the crisis will take the form of problems with relationship problems and our focus will normally be there but other times our troubles are something, maybe they're financial, maybe they're illness or whatever, where we can get so, where our relationships can be destroyed because we're in such a, a panic and a frenzy and an anger about it all. And that's more destructive than, than the problem. We need to really preserve those relationships. And, and remember, in, in the midst of crisis, you can still have good times and be positive, and that will matter so much to the children. Kate, thank you for trusting us with your experience and for speaking from the heart and from your own life, and we're so glad you're a part of this congregation. Thanks. Can you get up? You okay? You good? Okay, let me know. So I wanted to spend some time exploring this idea of caching resilience because I'm convinced that is what Jesus is doing in this passage that Glenna read. And maybe that shouldn't be surprising. Um, all of our best parenting skills, whether we're mothers or fathers, are really reflections of the way that Jesus loves us. Paul talks about this. Um, the reflections of how Jesus patiently and wisely forms us and molds us. And so it also probably shouldn't surprise us that just like a mom's love, Jesus' love has within it an element of ache, of poignancy, of sadness. Because Jesus also looks ahead. He looks over the horizons and he sees the sorts of things that these disciples, these men that he loves so much are going to experience. Except in Jesus' case, 
Of course, he sees it all far more clearly than a mother ever could, and he knows that it is not going to be all candy corn and cotton candy and unicorns. (laughs) Jesus looks ahead at what he already knows his disciples are going to experience, and he sees genuine suffering and pain and persecution that he cannot prevent. Because in spite of the victory of his coming resurrection, the world is not yet fully healed. There's this residue of evil in the world that is still playing itself out in violence and in cruelty and in fear. And so Jesus knows that before things get better, they're going to get worse. All that now seems permanent and durable is going to get shaken to pieces. What will transpire, Jesus tells them, will be as unthinkable as those giant, multi-ton monumental blocks of the wall of the Jerusalem temple tumbling down in a chaotic heap. And this is an unthinkable event that the Romans actually bring about in 70 AD. And Jesus says there will be earthquakes and famines and epidemics and disorder everywhere you look. The global turmoil that Jesus knows is coming will be fierce and appalling. But if Jesus looks ahead and he grieves that his beloved disciples will face the external chaos of a staggering world, what truly breaks Jesus' heart is that he knows the pain will also be personal. He knows that those who bear his name won't just be spectators of violence They'll be victims. They will know the very personal pain of of betrayal by friends, even within their own families. They will find themselves hauled before hostile courts and tribunals. They'll be persecuted just for being Jesus' followers, for bearing his name. And I can't imagine how much it hurts Jesus to say what he says in verse 17. He says, everyone will hate you because of me. Jesus looks beyond the horizon and what he sees breaks his heart, but he can't prevent it. He can't make it go away. He can't spare them the pain. What can he do? Just one thing. He can cash resilience. He can attempt to build within them, long before they will need it, a reservoir of strength and perseverance from which they will be able to draw in those dark days ahead. So that when those days come, they'll find the tenacity and the courage not to give up, not to surrender and sink beneath the pounding waves, as the song talked about, but to keep their eyes on Jesus and to persevere whatever comes. Cashing resilience. That's what Jesus is up to in this unsettling passage. He's not describing all this suffering just to frighten them or to freak them out. He is giving them what they are going to need not to give up and drown. So, what is it that Jesus tells them? How does he cash resilience? As he describes this rough road ahead for the disciples, and by extension, for all of us who bear his name, I hear Jesus telling them four things. The first thing that Jesus says is, when things get bad, resist the need for easy answers. 
On those difficult and confusing days, you will long for some simple way to explain away the suffering, to dissolve it. And there is going to be no shortage of unscrupulous experts ready to help. There will be shysters and charlatans happy to explain away the world's problems with all sorts of simplistic schemes and explanations. It is as if Jesus can already imagine the age of the internet and a Facebook on which every crackpot imaginable has a stage to peddle, in Jesus' name, their own calendar of the end times, their own color-coded chart, their own conspiracy theory. Watch out, Jesus says, watch out that you are not deceived. Many will come in my name, do not go after them. Do not hanker after the easy answers that explain away the pain. The pain is simply a broken world. You just need to be resilient and hang on tight. Second thing that Jesus says is when things get bad, let go of the need to outwit and out-argue those who make your life difficult. It is not about being more clever than them, Jesus says. It's not about coming up with just the right zingers to triumph or even to persuade. Instead, Jesus says, let it go. Make up your mind beforehand not to worry about how you'll defend yourself verbally. My words, Jesus says, are altogether different than rhetoric and clever disputation. My words are wise, and they're peaceable, and they are generous. So trust me, I promise to give you my words when you need them. Third thing. Jesus says, to cash resilience inside those disciples is to tell them, when things get bad, reframe the suffering that you're experiencing. As bad as things might get for you, because you are mine, your life is part of a story that is bigger than yourselves, a story whose final chapters you already know and that fact frees you to do something that most people are not able to do. To look up from your immediate circumstances and see something bigger. To use your own suffering, your own trials and heartaches to bear testimony to that larger story. To say what you know is ultimately true. Every experience of hardship is a chance to point people to me, Jesus says. Use it. Finally, Jesus reminds them, as bad as it gets, remember I love you and I will not abandon you and I will not let you perish. Now, if you were listening really carefully to this passage, you might see what sounds at least at first to us like a paradox. Because in verse 16, looking ahead, Jesus acknowledges this sobering fact. He says, they will put some of you to death. And that ends up happening. And yet two verses later, Jesus says, not a hair of your head will perish. I think Jesus intends that very paradox. Because it's part of this extraordinary promise that we barely understand. The promise that Paul will marvel at in his letter to the Romans that not even death should it come can separate you from my love. It can't ultimately destroy you. My love for you has conquered even death. 
As I, in kind of my mind's eye, imagine this scene that Luke describes in this passage in his 21st chapter, there's Jesus standing there with his 12 disciples, and there are these 12 peasant fishermen from way up in Galilee, and they've just arrived in the capital, and they are standing next to the visual splendor of Herod's majestic temple, and they are staring up at these mighty walls that are taller than anything they've ever seen in their lives. They are so spellbound that they can barely hear Jesus going on and on saying something or other about some coming day in some hazy future when not one stone will be left upon another. I could imagine all that those disciples really heard was Jesus saying blah, blah, blah. (laughs) If they were focusing at all on what he was saying, it just seems so implausible so remote that the words Jesus was saying barely registered. I can imagine the disciples feeling that way because I will admit it is similar to how I feel reading these words that he told them that day. Words about a coming season of persecution and of unthinkable hardship. Now, on one level, of course, The things that Jesus tells the disciples we can transfer to our lives. They are helpful for us. They do cash resilience within us as well. They prepare us to face our own personal struggles and hardships. And sometimes those are quite significant. And yet, these are words specifically about persecution. About persecution that they will face for bearing Jesus' name in a hostile and hateful world. And like I say, for each of those disciples, that experience, in fact, is going to turn out to define the rest of their lives. But that is not our experience, is it? By some fortunate historical accident, the particular historical moment and the culture and this part of the world in which God has set us on this planet is one largely characterized by religious tolerance, by civil liberties. Compared to many believers throughout history, even throughout the globe today, we in this room have known very little suffering or persecution for following Jesus. And so these words that Jesus says in verse in chapter 21 remind me just how fortunate and how blessed we've been. Because it turns out Jesus never promised the easy road that we have been given. In fact, it seems like the default is a hostile world. A world hostile to those who truly follow Jesus. And it's a prospect perhaps more plausible for us as we've currently experienced the fragility of our own democracy and its many assumptions and its many guardrails. But for those who do know persecution now and for those of us who don't or don't yet, Jesus leaves these words, words that cash resilience for whatever we'll face, the resilience of knowing that whatever happens Because Jesus walks with us, we are indeed walking into 